Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and multimeter showdowns. We're your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Doman. This is episode 372. Okay, so we got some news. Um, you've probably been listening to this news a lot, though, but uh, May the 4th is coming up. Um we have a event here at Macrofab HQ, which is in Houston, Texas. It's going to be May 4th, 2023, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Central Time at 10305 Roundup Lane, Suite 400 here in Houston, Texas. That's our HQ where we have our factory. And I'm actually going to, uh, it's like a behind the scenes tour of our new facility. Um, there's going to be food and drink and other things that they've been telling me about in marketing like i still got to confirm some of it because some of it sounds pretty wild but we'll see what's going on but i'm going to just read the events page which you can get to by going to macfred.com slash events slash may hyphen the hyphen fab hyphen b hyphen with hyphen you i probably should get marketing to get like a shortener i wonder if you yeah. just go to macfred.com slash events Yes, so if you just go to slash events, this event is there that you can click on. Okay, good. that's a lot easier. It's a lot easier. <laughs> but um, if you go to that event page, there's registration, so you have to register and all that good stuff. So we, you can make sure that uh, we have all your, the, we have enough stuff for every, everyone. Mm, so goodies and food. Yes. Um, so I'm just going to read this page because I started, I was reading this earlier and I'm like, this is like my favorite thing ever. Uh, this is, I'm so surprised that that marketing wrote this because this is something I would write for how silly it is. It's perfect. <laughs> I love it. You're You're finally after what? Nine years. You're rubbing off on them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but. Join us for an exclusive event where we'll explore the latest advancements in our industry and unite in a in the quest for technical innovation. See details below and may the force of innovation be with you. So it says May 4th, 2023, 6 o'clock p.m. to 9 o'clock p.m. Central Time, Macrofab 10305 Roundup Lane, Suite 400, Houston, Texas. And then it continues. Join the rebellion against mediocre electronics manufacturing and unite with Macrofab at our May the Fab Be With You gathering on May 4th in Houston. It's the largest congregation of EMS professionals in the galaxy, and we're inviting you to be part of it. May the force of good electronics be with you. Make the Kessel Run to Houston so you can experience the excitement up close. Attend our May the Fab Be With You event and catch all the action. And here's a list of all the action. Take an exclusive tour of our newly expanded production facility and see firsthand how we're building the technology of the future. Have a chance to meet and talk with our team of rebel electronic experts. Connect with other like-minded colleagues across the universe, all while enjoying tasty refreshments fit for a Jedi Knight. The force is strong with those who join us on this quest to revolutionize the galaxy of electronics manufacturing. Register now and prepare to embark on a journey that will long remembered in the annals of history. Together, we will unlock new possibilities and forge a path to a better tomorrow. And then there's the registration. 
They, they, I, I love how much they leaned into this. Like, oh yeah, they, I love it. They went, they went full ham on it. It yeah. is great. And uh, I like how I was talking about that, and we lost like two viewers on our stream. <laughs> 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 um, I think they're giving away lightsabers. Um, that are like they say like macrofab or made of fab be with you or something like that on them. Um, cool. And there's been talk of like. I don't. It's not in here, so I don't want to promise anything. But I think there's going to be a costume contest. I think I have to check. It's not in here, but they were talking about it. I'm probably going to dress up. So well, I I guess there's what it's about five weeks off. So yeah. there's there's still a little bit of time for things to gel and solidify. Mm-hmm. And there was talk about. Um, doing a podcast live and i don't know if we're doing that yet steven i have to find out so if that's true i'm like well we gotta get steven to houston <laughs> well okay the, the funny thing about that is it that may actually work out with what's happening next for me uh, who knows it, it may be it may be possible that i might be in houston around that time anyway so yeah. perhaps we could make that work out i mean i could always come down regardless because that yeah. sounds like fun no yeah um so yeah, uh, it's macfred.com slash events. Go click there and register for the event. It should be a lot of fun. That would be awesome. Okay, so on to the actual topics at hand. So the first thing is a couple weeks ago, I found a enclosure from Bud Industries. I don't remember what I was looking for. I think I was trying to find a part number of another enclosure I've used before. And then I found this and it's called the Board Ganizer. Board Dash Ganizer. Yes. Enclosure kit. Uh, there's going to be a link in our. Because um, that's probably really hard to Google for. <laughs> but, yeah, because Ganizer is not a normal word. You no, it's not a normal for. word. Um, <laughs> but it, basically, it's a. You said it earlier. It's like a. It's a CubeSat type. Yep device so it's like it's about four inches it looks about four inches by four inches by four inches cube i think you're close it's five by five okay is what it says on the website and it unfolds into like to, to be laid out flat and then you can put breadboards and your evaluation boards like on the inside and kind of like wire them up how you need to wire them up and then you can kind of fold it all together into its protective cube sat cubeness it really does. Uh, gosh, when when I first started uh, at Macrofab, there was there were two engineering students who were working there, and both of them were on a team at University of Houston making CubeSats, and uh, they had a little enclosure that was like I don't know, it was like clear acrylic, or it was like red acrylic. If I, I remember, I printed that. You printed that. I printed okay. that on my printer. <laughs> it, it, my so my memory is a little foggy, I guess. But but the the when I first saw. When I saw the the board ganizer, that's the first exactly. thing that came to yeah. mind because it looks exactly like that. So for those who don't know, a CubeSat is a small cube satellite that uh, there. I don't know. There are projects that I've seen at many colleges around where you build a a small satellite and they basically take it to space and they just open the doors and push them out yeah, yeah. <laughs> into space, like literally, like yeah. it's just here you go. And I guess that you could design to melt telemetry or, or some other kind of I don't know sensors or something it's it's uh it's an engineering challenge that 
uh, I, I guess eventually uh, a lot of them actually do get released into space. But yeah, this Borganizer from Bud Industries looks spot on exactly like that. Yeah, yeah. I I bet you it was inspired by CubeSats for sure. For sure, yeah. The, the the thing that I think is is funny about this is basically what it is is there's four plastic plates that have hinges on them, and you 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 lay them out flat on your bench. You build them onto this thing, and it, like Parker said, it kind of Swiss rolls up, and uh, and you can then just affix it into a cube. But there's not there's not specific like connection points. It's just four mm. plastic plates that you double side tape your your stuff to. Stuff to so yeah. I'm. It's kind of like in the in the grand scheme of prototyping, I guess if you think of like the bottom bottom of the barrel, you have just a raw breadboard, right? And I'm not saying bottom of the barrel isn't like bad. I'm just and saying like, no, no. But you actually, it's actually a breadboard that you cut bread on. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so like this is like one step above breadboard in protection level of your. Product. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Sure, you still got wires around and stuff, but at least it's like contained. And honestly, if when I was in college, that would have been awesome to have. I agree. Like yeah, to be totally. able to like roll up your your lab into a, this protective cubeness of thing of plastic, instead of being like having to hold your breadboard and like duck and weave through like hallway traffic. So like you or need hold to, your breadboard and ride your bicycle. To, to oh yeah, I've done college. that before. <laughs> <laughs> I have too. Yeah. <laughs> you hold it like a pizza in one hand <laughs> and trying to ride your bike with the other hand. I've got a delivery. <laughs> yeah. And if you crash, yeah. you fail. <laughs> I can also I I could see this being something like really useful for having you you build up your whatever you're you're looking to test. You kind of snap it all together and you push it away, and it's and it's at least self-contained and it's enclosed enough. But you can still access all of your whatever you're yeah all the widgets with. in so, there. Yeah, it, it, it's it's cool. I, I I would totally use one of these things for like a quick and dirty. I need an enclosure, but I don't want to go to the drill press. Give me some double side tape, and I'll just <laughs> yeah stick, stick it all everything together. together. Yeah. I like it. I think this would be great for students. Like if I ran a, a embedded systems class, I would be like, this is part of the thing you need to get. And you build your circuit on breadboard and stuff inside of this thing. Just because like, like the heartache of dropping your breadboard is pains me so. I love seeing this kind of stuff because in some ways it doesn't look serious. And and I'm not saying that as in like a bad way. It just it doesn't look like this high end enclosure oh, yeah. product. It, it, no, it's not. But but it has full on engineering drawings, uh, and it's got a goofy name like Borganizer. That's Borganizer. something we would come up with. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like I love that. It's so great. And and on top of that, it's not pricey. I I think we saw it for what like eighteen dollars or something like that. Yeah, and that's in singles at like Mauser. I think it goes down to like eight or something like that. Um, let me check real quick. What if if you're going to be manufacturing hundreds of these or something? Well, I imagine <laughs> if like you were running an embedded systems class, you would buy them in bulk. Yeah, actually, that I, I that would. Or, or like a lab for 
some college class, I could yeah. see that being really useful. Yeah, it looks like $12.30 is about the cheapest they get. And I bet you if you, like, called up Bud and been like, hey, Bud, I got a, I got some embedded system <laughs> do, do you think people do that to them? Oh, yeah, 100%. When you call into their applications line, you just, hey, Bud. Hey, Bud. <laughs> oh, okay. 100% that's what's happening. <laughs> I have I have one suggestion if if anyone from Bud is listening. If if there is a way to make like a little snap in handle so this could be like a little briefcase oh, that so you like could a carry GameCube? in. Yeah, yeah, but then like the handle disconnects and it unfolds and your lab is there, right? Then yeah, like a lunchbox. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The lunchbox canizer. <laughs> that is the board organizer. You know, it would be I, cool to get like someone from the the enclosure industry on here. Bonus what? points would be butt industry, so we can talk about the board organizer. <laughs> I, you know, I'm I'm looking at the drawing that they have for it, and it doesn't uh, in the title block. I'm not seeing a name, a name or, or uh. initials. You know, so. Maybe that perhaps on the uh, on the on the customer facing front they don't show <laughs> that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Okay. It's it's made from ABS with the uh, uh, steel hinge pins on it. Which you know, hey, if if you drop it, it's not going to just shatter, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, your breadboard's going to all fall. Yeah, apart. fall apart, and all the wires get jumbled up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a cool idea. All right, all right. Yeah, I like it. I like it. So, uh, yeah, let's move on. So, uh, I ever since I was a, a young fledgling engineer in, in college, I always lusted after uh, having good equipment in my uh, in my home shop. And uh, multiple times throughout this podcast, Mark and I have talked about good enough equipment, but today, Mark's kind of a special day for me because like i'm I, it's like i'm a real engineer now i i i got i was able to acquire a fluke 87v multimeter and it, and, it, and it feels special because i feel like i finally made it now i'd like i'm 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 an older engineer you older know? engineer yeah i finally have like a respectable multimeter but i wanted to talk about that be, uh, because um, Parker and I have talked multiple times about multimeters and having just good enough equipment. And I still feel like that is uh, acceptable and reasonable. Uh, the the meters that we've used in the past, we've talked multiple times about um, our Harbor Freight Wonders that we bought. And I've gotten this far in all of my projects and even stuff at work using a harbor freight meter but now i just had that deal that i could not pass up on a on a on a big boy multimeter but uh earlier today i pulled up data sheets of both my my new fancy 87v fluke versus my centex 61593 which is just a harbor freight wonder and compared the two and the first thing i i noticed the Centec, I, uh, if you go right now to, to Harbor Freight, you're going to spend $39.99 on 
this multimeter. And if you go to Fluke right now and look at how much they're asking for for an 87, it's $520. So we have an over 10x cost difference between these two. So I'm wondering, is there a 10x difference in or a 10x difference between these two? So I, I wanted to do a quick comparison, but beforehand, uh, Parker, I know you have a different meter that you've been using. What what do you? What is your daily driver? So my daily driver meter, I have a in quote Velman, which is like a brand for like hobbyists. But this is just like they just slap their brand on this. Um, the model's like DVM eight fifty BL. If you like start looking, like if you Google that. You will see a meter and then just go on Amazon and look for multimeters and you'll see a lot of meters like this one that have like 850L or something like that in its model number. It's something I bought at, I think, Radio Shack for 25 bucks when I was in college and I've dropped it at the beach, in the sand, in salt water. Uh, it's lived on top of it running engines. Um, I can't kill it. I, like one time I did, like it got really crunchy, and I opened up and like I like took sand out of it <laughs> and put it back together, and it still functions just fine. Um, and I, I I have hooked it up to like a really nice fluke meter, and it got the same numbers. And I'm like, you know, for what I do, digital circuitry stuff, it's fine. Now, of course, we were talking about. Uh, couple months ago the uh the cat feeder on reminder which is really low current draw there's no way this meter can help me out there so i had to had to up my meter game on that um but for majority of stuff like i still use that velvet that's that's the meter i grab all the time the the beater meter (laughs) yeah no yeah exactly what it is Well, and, and, and I can tell you this, even though I'm excited about my new yellow toy here, uh, I'm still going to use this Sentec. And I will probably, like, if I need to go stick some probes in a wall socket somewhere to see if, if it's live, I'll probably grab the Sentec, you know, uh, or just whatever's closest to me. Uh, the, so what you're saying so- is the <laughs> fluke meter, though, is like your Instagram, like, influencer mod. Like, when you go and, like, want to like show off like you know someone's watching that's when you're going to take the fluke out yeah and you'll have like a leather case for it 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 depends on who yeah it's just it's it's who i'm talking to and who's looking at me right yeah (laughs) yeah if i'm in an interview i'm talking flukes right there you go (laughs) but if i'm just banging some stuff out on uh on my bench it's either or (laughs) either or whichever one's the closest yeah, whichever is, yeah, yeah. Actually, okay, and before we get into the difference of these, I picked up this meter today. What's the very first thing I do after I get it? I go to Amazon, and I got some sharp probes. I got a brand new set of sharp probes, and they're, it was $9 shit. Yeah, those $9, <laughs> they're a dollar more than the last time we talked about them. Yeah, yeah. Inflation's well, killing and, us. And, and I have a pair of those, but uh, they're slightly bent because someone cranked on them when trying to measure something and so it's like i just need a fresh pair mm, someone like, huh? i got this new toy no I, it was not me I, I actually promise you that um i do try to keep uh, take care of my meter probes and my scope probes as much as i can you know 
I actually had a uh, an engineer at a previous job tell me to solder a scope probe to a board once. Like, just straight up, take the tip, stick it on the board, and solder it in place. He's like, if you need the best connection, you have to sacrifice the probe. And I was like, uh, I don't I don't think I'm going to do that. And I was able to get the information I wanted, but... That guy has, like, an annual $10,000 budget for scope probes. <laughs> yeah, single-use scope probes. Yeah. Now, I don't remember what I was measuring. It was some kind of... I don't know. It was some kind of high-speed signal, but I was able to get what I needed without having to do that. Oh. Okay, yeah, so so let, let's take a look at the difference of this. Uh, remember, the, the, the comparison I'm doing here is $520 versus $40. Do you get that much value, shall we say, between them? So, so first of all, the fluke I have is actually an auto-range fluke. You don't get a choice. Well, you, you can, but if you just turn it on, it's going to auto-range. Fluke is kind of the best at auto range because it's just quick. It's really fast. It gets you there. It's snappy. I, it's never been an issue for me. Let's yeah, yeah. I would say with flukes, the the auto ranging works really well. It's never been yeah. a problem. And it's, and I've I was actually playing with the auto range earlier today. And it has a boatload of hysteresis on it, actually. Hmm. So if you go past the auto range point where it trips and goes into the next range, and then you come back, you have to go way back before that threshold point hmm. for it to switch, uh, which is actually really convenient. Uh, yeah, so it's not just so that it's not bouncing in between bouncing a, lot. a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they they tried to make it as seamless as possible. So you're not just annoyed with it. Because I have worked with auto rangers that are like comparator edge yeah. <laughs> auto rangers. And it just keeps flipping around right on that like <laughs> yeah. six volt. You have a signal at like six point something volts. And that's like where that auto range flips. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. And it just goes freaking nuts. Yeah, because I, uh, I think this fluke was switching. It was switching around six volts. And it was six point something. I don't know, six point four or three something that it was switching. But I had to go back down to like 5.6 for it to go back down uh, the range. So that is also interesting, though, because you you have different you. It displays different resolutions depending on which way you approach the the you, your voltage. If you're coming high, low versus low, high. Hmm. So that's that's at least something to consider. Uh, with that but regardless auto ranging on this is not an issue now my Sentec has uh it's just selectable ranges you just turn the dial you get there and i there is a slight benefit i think to for you selecting the range you want and one of the reasons why i say that is because before you measure your the voltage you have to have some level of confidence about what you're going to measure because you're setting it up for that. And I think that's actually kind of helpful. In other words, like you don't just stick your meter on there. And if it says overload, spin the dial until it doesn't say overload. That's not a particularly <laughs> helpful way of doing it. Like if I take, for instance, the circuits I deal with, I'm, I'm talking about 500 volts. Like if I'm going to go probe 500 volts, I know in my head before I even pick up my meter, I'm going to be looking at 500 volts and I set my meter for that. It's not like I just stumble upon 500 volts. And so with the fluke, like it being an, an auto ranger, you can just tap on it and it'll just jump to 500 and be like, oh, that's 500. I, I just think that there's a little bit of 
there's a little benefit of you knowing what you're trying to measure before you go and measure it. It and, probably helps um, complacency. In your case, 500 volts is what you would call like the not fun to touch zone of voltages. Yeah. And so yeah, being yeah, yeah. complacent about that, I could see how that could help complacency and make it a little right. bit more safer where you're like, oh, I'm actually going to be measuring 500 volts, so I should be more careful. Exactly. And and just the fact that you say, I need to measure a voltage. And the fact that the Sentec makes you select the range kind of prepares your mind for the impending doom that you're about to measure, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, I don't know, it's a safety thing in my mind that I think I'm going to give a slight edge to manual range on that. Uh, so oh, we're actually going. You actually like picking and choosing winners here. Picking and choose, yeah, picking and choosing winners. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what we end up with here. The uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The, so in going through the the data sheets for these to find the the more nitty gritty details like resolution and accuracy that kind of stuff. First of all, the Centec is a what is it? A two thousand count. So three and a half digit, and the fluke is a 6,000 count. So you're going to be able to, to display a lot more before it shifts range on the fluke, quite a bit more. Um, the fluke, by default, is also a three and a half digit. So they, they're both comparable in that sense. However, the fluke has a mode that you can hold down a button, and it goes into high resolution mode, and it switches from a 6,000 count to a 20,000 count and turns in itself into a four and a half digit uh, meter. So is there a I reason actually, why that's not on all the time? <laughs> I think battery usage because it it consumes a bit more juice when that mm, when you do okay. that. I believe so. I, I, I don't fully have that backed up, but um, I don't know don't know the answer to it. But if you need that extra digit of accuracy, you can go into high res mode on the fluke, uh, which is which is pretty cool. So uh, the fluke obviously wins in this category. 6,000 count, 20,000 count, up to four and a half digit resolution in your hand. Now, on almost every single category, well, I, no, I'm, I'm even going to say every single category, the fluke is more accurate, and most of the time it's 4x or better accuracy than the Centec. Also, on top of that, the Centec has a lot of conditions with its accuracy. It'll say it's 1% accurate across this range, and across this range it'll be you know, 2% accurate or whatnot. There's a lot of derating on the Centec, whereas with the Fluke, it just says basically across the whole range, for this measurement, it is this accurate kind of thing. And like I said, in almost every category it was 4x or better accuracy so the fluke just blows the set deck out of the water and and i think that's kind of the main difference that's the that's the bulk of that 10x cost difference between the two is just you're going to have way more confidence in the fluke telling you the right answer than the Centec. even though the Centec could give you the exact same result you can have way more confidence with the fluke um, on top of that, the Fluke, they very likely have a much, much more advanced calibration <laughs> than the Centec. I don't know anything about how the Centec is done. 
the fluke you can actually order uh, calibration certificates with them when you get them there's just a a many many steps up of professionalism mm-hmm. and uh and calibration with the flukes so the fluke absolutely blows it out of the water on it another thing about this fluke is it actually has uh backlit screens uh with different like brightness levels which is really nice the screen looks good at lots of viewing angles uh the one thing that the Sentech has that i think is funny is the screen has a little like you could probably hear that like the screen can kickstand out. See, I actually wish my meter had that. Well, okay. So instead of the kickstand on the back of a fluke to, yeah. to have it uh, stand up, the screen on the Sentec tips up at an angle. So you can keep the meter flat on your bench and tip the screen. And I've actually found that to be a really convenient option. Yeah, I, I'd love to have that. <laughs> and um, I'm. I'm kind of deviating a little bit but a, a flip up screen and you know how they some of them have the like strap on the back that has a magnetic disc hmm. I wish I had a meter that had one of those too yeah I, I I believe Fluke actually has a meter I don't remember the number but it actually has a wireless screen that you can un you can disconnect oh, I heard, I've seen that and yeah. you can you can put it anywhere you need which is yeah. kind of awesome actually that, cool. uh, that way you can you can have the screen where it's most visible for you but that's also super wanky and the amount of times i've ever needed something like i i guess in automotive that would be yeah i'm about to say awesome. i'm like i could use that probably like once a month because otherwise yeah. i'm like if i'm measuring voltage and stuff like that like i'm running like alligator clips super long to like Hook stuff daisy up, chain. daisy chaining stuff together, just so I can get the screen somewhere where I can read it when I'm like right. manipulating something or whatever. Um, that's about it, though, for me. Right. I could see you setting that up, where like the multimeter could be in like the danger zone when something's activated, and you can have the screen with you to see what the measurement that you're taking is. Um, that would be really useful for that kind of feature. Or maybe, maybe I don't know, you're in an electronic cabinet or a large one, and there's a convenient spot to measure voltage, but not at the same spot a convenient place to measure current. You could have two meters and have both of the screens near you, but one of them physically in a different location. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would be... I, I, I... I'm thinking that's like a that would be a really cool feature to have. <laughs> it's it's super cool, right? Uh, but it's also very expensive. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. So so honestly, between these two, I've used the flukes a oh, lot. You got one in, more comparison in here. You missed. No, I do. I'll, I'll come back to that. I'm just uh, okay. on the kickstand thing. I oh, actually okay. I actually prefer the Sentec flip screen as opposed to flukes. I've been using flukes since college and the whole the whole flip out kickstand thing is cool but the flip screen on the Sentech is it i think it beats it to be honest mm-hmm. uh and and i'm gonna do real quick uh this is not you can see it on the stream i'm gonna do the dave jones test if you've ever watched eev blog when he gets a multimeter one of the very first thing he does is he he grabs it in both hands and he tries to torque it uh, and that's like that's like his test of like durability, and I I kind of love that, and that's his test of like does it feel skookum? Uh, huh. So of course the fluke is feels beefy, the Sentec 
just as beefy. Okay. Uh, I can't really tell the difference. So not a very scientific test. But I suppose if you did have a really crappy meter, it might flex or, or whatever. Okay. And then the most... Oh, yeah, but Parker's flexing his. Nah, he, he shrugged feels, his shoulder. Okay. <laughs> yeah, feels feels. You fun. can hear sand inside might, of it. <laughs> it's still crunchy. So I, crunchy. I thought I might give a nod to Dave Jones and, and you know, attempt his test. Uh, okay, so one last one last thing, and this is the most important thing that a multimeter can do. Parker and I have talked about this many times, is the all-important beep test. Uh, that is that continuity test on a on a meter is like the number one thing I use for uh, meters for. And I will give it to the fluke. The fluke is damn near instantaneous. That's uh, nice. Yeah. It is so fast. And my Centec is is quick. Uh, I'll, I'll, for a lower grade meter, I got to give it credit, but the, the fluke is nearly instantaneous. And, and so it's just a ah, chef's kiss. How loud is it? Uh, that's, that's like, for me, that's the most important thing is usually, you know, I'm in the garage working on stuff and I'll have music on. And if I have to turn my music down to hear my meter, there's something wrong. <laughs> Yeah, you, you need like 10 watts of... of yeah, beat. exactly. Needs an amplifier in there. Are you able to hear that? No. Is that coming through? Okay. It's, uh, I would say, loud enough for office work. But automotive, this is probably not going to do it for you. Hmm. So, it it's 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 quick. It It is funny because you, uh, I, I work... The office next to me is... Um, where they do RMAs and repair stuff. And all that's all I hear all day long. Is beep, beep, beep. <laughs> <laughs> so all said and done a pretty, it's, it, you know, it's not going to be that much of a surprise, but the, the fluke certainly beats out the Centec. But as Parker and I have said many, many times on the podcast, do you need a, a high quality like this this grade of of meter for most of your stuff? No, absolutely not. It's I think it's one of those things where if you if you do need it, you know you need it kind of situation. And I just got a screaming deal on it, so I was like, I gotta have it mm-hmm. uh, just to have it. And, and mainly, I gotta have it so I can, now I have two meters. <laughs> like it never hurts See, to have more than one meter. What if what if you bought a Centec? For thirty nine ninety nine, and then you bought a can of yellow spray paint for four ninety nine. Mmm. Yeah, the fluke tech. <laughs> I think. I think you're onto something there, Parker. Or the Sun Luke. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, so so in this in this deal, I got. I, I actually also picked up an oscilloscope. Um, which which is fun because I've I've been using an analog scope for years and years, mm-hmm. and uh, digital scopes are just so nice. They, they are they, what, what, they, what they offer. So uh, I I got a screaming deal on that too. So I couldn't I couldn't turn it up. So I ended up getting a Rigel DS two zero seven two, which is a you know it's not like super amazing or anything like that. Yeah, but that's a pretty good meter. All right, a good scope. <laughs> It's a great scope, but I mean, it's, it, you know, you're not going to be doing like crazy high speed stuff on it. But then again, I don't do crazy high speed exactly, stuff. Yeah. So for, for a daily driver, it is a really great scope. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm really excited to start playing with that. I'm glad you got some uh, really good deals and some good equipment. Hey, it only took me, what is this, uh, 13 years or so, and I'm finally an engineer now. I have a fluke. Finally an engineer now. <laughs> uh, all right, so the next topic is, um, this is kind of like a broad topic, and but it's only because something recent came up in my life that kind of like, jogged my brain on maybe some techniques that we could that engineers could use and it's the topic's going to be debugging things that don't work which is like if you could write one sentence about what engineers do that's that's it right yeah engineers debug their own things that don't work yes like they they make the thing not work and then debug it (laughs) (laughs) yeah they make the thing not work um, so what brought this up is my, my Jeep Wagoneer ever since about last fall, hasn't really been too happy with its life. Okay. It's been like backfiring and not running correctly. And more recently it's been even worse, like to the point where like, you can't really drive it that well. Um, I, I drove it down to, uh, Galveston this past weekend. And basically I picked up some crawfish and so we had a big old crawfish ball down Galveston. And I was kind of like worried that like, I hopefully I don't have to pull over the side of the road and like the crawfish boil in the back of my, my wagon here. Right. <laughs> and, um, gross. And then, uh, I actually managed to hobble it back to Houston. And so on Sunday I was looking into it and, um, I'm like, okay, you know what's up with the engine make sure it has fuel pressure all that good stuff um the uh because and um i did i started running some basic diagnostics on it and uh threw in some like snake oil into it to see if it like you know it was like a sticky valve or something like that um and nothing really was solving the problem and i'm like okay let's get down to basics Let's do a compression test on all the cylinders and figure out what's because like at this point, I'm like, there's something mechanically wrong with this engine. And I'm like, it's got 220,000 miles on it. It's it it was not taken care of well before I got it. Um, So I'm like, okay, it might be on it. Just it's on its way out. And so on the, the second cylinder, I do a compression test on the spark plug wire just disintegrates in my hand. And these are, <laughs> by the way, br- these spark plug wires are only about eight months old. Oh, yeah. Okay. And uh, I'm like, I bet you that's the problem. And I pulled that one plug out and that plug is pretty fouled up. Uh, it's got oil and stuff on it. So it wasn't probably firing much at all. So I cleaned the plug, put it back in, replaced the wire. Lo and behold, it runs like a brand new truck now. Um, I still don't know if it's completely solved the backfiring issue because I haven't brought it onto the freeway at speed yet, but um, it's kind of interesting uh, this whole journey of finding a bad spark plug wire and what's happened since then. Um, because last summer it was uh, the Wagoneer ran on a carburetor. It was still a carburetor uh, um, fueled engine and in the fall, I decided to switch it over to electronic fuel injection. There's a kit set you can buy that 
basically you bolt on something that looks like a carburetor, but it's got fuel injectors instead of gravity fed or venturi fed jets uh, for the fuel. And so to do that part though, I had to put a new intake on the engine. So I bought an intake, put it on, put the put this carburetor or this uh, fuel injection module thingy on, and it ran great, but it backfired every so often. Like you'd be driving down the road and then it would backfire once on the freeway and then whatever. And I always thought it was like a fuel issue, right? Cause like, I just put this new fuel injection thing on. It's gotta be the tune. And I started messing with the tune a lot. It, I had some people look at my tune and the results that it was getting and were like, this is really weird. It's acting more like a mechanical problem or maybe you have a big vacuum leak cause you just swapped the intake. So I pulled the intake off, replaced the gasket, did all that work again. That, it, that did not solve it at all. And then it just progressively got worse until the point to where you can't really drive it anymore. And that's when I kind of like said, okay, let's just restart all the diagnostics all over again and pull the second wire and the end just basically disintegrated in my hand. It was all charred up. So it's probably had a, a, a poorly manufactured crimp inside that spark plug wire that created more resistance. And then what I'm going to guess what happened is it was fine for a while. And then when I did the intake swap and pulled the plug wires off, I probably made that connection worse to the point where it was probably arcing inside of that plug boot and then caused it to fail. Um, so what I kind of want to bring up is just like problem solving techniques, right? Like, when you start chasing your own tail like i was for like the past six months on this problem and then getting to the point like when do you start to hit like the reset button to start over or like you do you do you if you have a team do you like pass the problem on to someone else to have the, you know a fresh set of eyes to look at it um i i don't know like I've never had think, this kind of problem before where like I couldn't figure it out kind of like in the first stab, right? Cars are cars are interesting cuz they have so many subsystems that are sequential where you say this is good, okay, move to the next step. This is good, move to the next step. And there's something there's something really fun about that where you can you can kind of conceptualize in your mind like how things are functioning and and you can work through it and say it can't be xyz because i know these conditions are met so move on to the next thing right but, but that's what got me in trouble yeah exactly in your situation you had a latent failure that was not easily detectable and those mm -hmm. are kind of the really crappy ones uh it's kind of like when i'm sure you've experienced this before where you have a pcb where uh it's it's working then you hand it to somebody and then it doesn't work and they hand it back to you and it works and oh yeah and it's something and where like a slight board flex is is the problem and and you know there's a like yeah. a trace that's making just enough connection those kinds of things will drive you absolutely insane and you end up being the person that's got like the magic touch that makes something work in the company <laughs> Oh my, and, and you know what? I actually, I had, I had an issue just the other day um, where an operator came up to me and said, hey, I'm getting weird results from this, this one unit and it's a product I designed. 
Uh, and he's like, when I turn it on, I'm only getting positive voltages from my sine waves that are coming out of it. So it just it looks like a rectified signal that comes out of it. I was like, okay. So I took it. I go and put it on my bench. Fires up great. No problems. Uh, so I hand it back to him like, this looks fine. Try it again. Maybe there was something strange about your setup. Doesn't work for him. So I take it. I go put on a whole different scope, whole different power supply. Works. Uh, I hand it back to him. Still doesn't work for him. So I go into the testing room and I put it on three other test rigs and it fires up fine for me. And I give it to him. Fires up wrong again on his. So it actually ended up being an issue, a startup issue. Uh, where I had a capacitor that was right on the edge of tolerance and just everything stacked up with his test bench and his sit rig and the way his power supplies came up when he turned on his stuff and the tolerance of that one capacitor that is a it's a it's a ramp capacitor in a switch mode supply that it just it would screw up on his and I even I even tried getting a heat gun out and I would just heat up that one capacitor and it would fire up fine on his bench. But when it cooled down, it would, it would mess up. Uh, and so it was just like a, a perfect storm of everything going wrong and I ended up just replacing the capacitor and it works fine. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah. Uh, those kind of situations will just drive you nuts because it, it you know, cause all you could do is say like, it works for me. Right? No, exa exactly. Like I was like, I was like, these spark plugs and the plugs themselves and the whole ignition system was working fine before the intake swap. And they were only a couple months old at that point. So I'm like, that can't be the problem because it was running fine beforehand. I actually, okay, and that that mind mentality right there might be the issue is mm -hmm. when you say that can't be the problem. Uh, that causes you to be blind to potential issues. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that's I think that's might be what it is. Is just because something is, uh, just because something is new doesn't mean you had an early, you didn't have an early failure or a manufacturing fault. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, so so in terms of problem solving techniques, one thing that I have learned and I've learned it the hard way, too many times and I've started to do this is just if I, if I'm going to, to, if I know something is wrong with something I'm trying to repair and I get into it and if it's, if it doesn't stand out to me quickly and quickly depends on what it is quickly on electronics might be 15 minutes quickly on a car might be an hour. Mm -hmm. Uh, if, but if it doesn't, if it doesn't appear to me quickly, I'll get out a notebook and I'll start writing down what I've done. Uh, and, because I've learned too many times where I get three, four, five hours into trying to fix a thing, and then I forget what I've done. And, and you start repeating. I, I, and it, you start repeating, and you have to go back. Mm -hmm. And that starts to become problematic with PCBs um, because you can start getting into the, the, the problem of putting too much heat on parts, trying mm -hmm. to reflow things or fix things or blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so, so there's sort of like two modes that you go in. Like the initial one is, can I fix this fast? And if, if that doesn't happen, you got to switch over to, okay, we need to put a lot of time into it. And, and that's the point at which I like, if, if I, if I reach that threshold where I know I'm going to need to put more time into it, that's when I start asking the question, at least at work, 
is this product worth my time? Is my boss mm. going to be mad because I spent eight hours of engineering time trying to fix a thing that cost $100, you know? Yeah. Chris Craft in our, our live chat says, if I run into problems, I usually don't assume anything is good and do a step-by-step -step test and measure the output at each stage until I find something that doesn't look right. Yes, that is what I should have done. I, I was looking at it as I had just made these radical changes to my engine that th those radical changes must have been the cause of it not running right. And it ended up being previous radical thing i just did had a latent failure that caused this this to be uh i thought it was a fueling issue or a error issue in the engine end up being, or a mechanical issue eventually like i was thinking like the valves were sticking or something like bad was happening to the engine and end up being nope everything's all happy but what i should have done is when i this when i thought it was a mechanical issue i should have just gone and measured the mechanical issues and seeing if it was because I actually, I, even though that was only the second wire I pulled and it was bad, I ended up doing a compression test on all the cylinders and everything was like low, but everything was like really close to each other. So it was just, it's just a worn engine, but they all drifted together. It all just, which is normal. That's how an engine uh, engine has friction. So friction eats metal. So, you know, yeah it's for how old it is it actually has more compression than i thought it would have but that's that was my mistake is i should have investigated the system more fully and not assumed that certain subsystems were flawless because they were flawless beforehand well you know another pitfall i'm sure we've all run into it and we will continue to do it just because it's our nature um yeah if if something stops working having that mindset where you go well nothing's changed well no something has to have changed yeah right? something has to have changed i agree there now yeah the trick is on that is i didn't change anything so what did change exactly exactly <laughs> like uh, like when, when you go when you get called onto the manufacturing floor because something is not working and it was working yesterday and there's like well, i haven't changed anything well no like let's not jump to that conclusion let's start looking at what has changed because obviously something has changed yeah. it's the code yeah. the code changed yep yep that's it yeah it's never hardware guys issues ever <laughs> never, never never the hardware nope we're, or we're the assembly <laughs> <laughs> it's always those guys it's always the code <laughs> yep oh man okay um so yeah that's an interesting it is yeah taking a step back and don't assume if, yeah, that's the thing is, if it's, you should probably look at what changed more most recent because that's usually the cause. And if that isn't the cause or is glaring the cause, then what Chris Kraft said is correct is you should just assume everything's broken and work through the system until you find what actually is the culprit. And with, with Chris Kraft's uh, example there, that works really well if you have a very linear system where mm -hmm. you know a flows to b flows to c and you can start doing that that you don't always get that lucky that's true uh, so and, but 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 the thing is i would say that a a properly designed system is it tries to be linear so tries to be, as yeah. much as much as you can you try to do that but you don't always get 
that lucky. Yeah. Sometimes there's a lot of codependencies. Yes. So, because I think basically what made me start running around my tail on this one was I would look at the the sensor inputs on my EFI system and it would go super lean when it would pop. And so I'm like, oh, a lean backfire. So that's probably like a valve sticking open. What was actually hap- what I think was happening was that cylinder was not running right. It like doesn't have spark in it. Fuel would pull up there and then ignite and then the and then or excess fuel would go into the exhaust and then the the EFI system goes, hey, there's extra fuel. We should lean out the engine. And then that was causing my lean spikes, basically, because it would go lean and then cause the backfire. And so it was like this, like the sensors were telling the story, but I was not reading the story. I was reading it into a different language, basically. <laughs> you were reading what you wanted to into. I think so. Yeah, I was reading what I wanted to. I wanted to blame the new fuel system so badly that I just completely was oblivious to the fact that it was just an ignition problem yeah makes sense so hmm. well also you know if a if a cylinder doesn't fire then your timing on how power is delivered gets off by a full cycle and that's just going to make it run rough right yeah well it's a it always never ran really well to begin with because it's a really old engine so it was like it would stumble sometimes with the old carburetor, but I was just chalked it up to it's an old engine. So it's back to its old ways, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to a worn engine, I'm not going to say worn out, but worn in like what mm-hmm. you have. Um, just from my ignorance in automotive, can you run into issues with putting new equipment on a worn engine because they haven't drifted together only on mating surfaces that move okay. yeah sure. um like, like seals uh, are, are tough on on things that haven't worn together uh no not really like rubber like if you replace a gasket or like a seal like on a rotating assembly usually that's fine like you don't really have to worry about that what you have to worry about is like metal on metal contact services like Mm. bearings or um the main one is especially in older american cars which are push rod driven camshafts with a um where you have basically a lifter that is riding on a lobe of a camshaft with like a thin oil and those wear together because how it wrote when it when the cam rotates the lifter actually count like counter rotates on top of it to kind of like make a slight dish into the bottom of the lifter so it like rotates correctly and lubes itself right and if you just throw new lifters in there or a different camshaft or get them mixed or the lifters mixed up which ones go where that you will eat a, a, a camshaft just totally like it'll just eat it alive so do you you replace them all at the same time is that the solution you, if you replace a lifter some people have managed to get away with it but most of the time it will just eat your cam alive usually when you replace the cam you replace the lifters as well or you replace the lifters and then you also replace the cam Makes sense. But that's only on like push rod engines. Like other engines have other probably things that are like that too. Similar. 
basically it's like if it's a metal on metal contact surface that you have wearing in things to worry about but yeah you can put like a new intake or whatever on an engine it's fine though you're putting like brand new parts on the greasy old engine is that always a good idea probably not but whatever <laughs> we do it for fun <laughs> why not what is it uh too good of parts on on cheap enough junk mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've all been there um all right so before we're gonna wrap up uh soon um so i got some kind of announcements kind of things these don't really fit in the news segment at the very beginning though the power distribution module some people were asking about this in the slack channel so what is up with this project um i'm kind of waiting to finish up a side project for the podcast before i start this project because i want this one to be kind of community driven open source and i want a place to discuss it correctly and that correctly part has been a discussion between steven and i misha which is the ceo of macrofab um marketing at macrofab and then a couple other people i've talked to that are also running communities for like for engineers and the like and i think what we're going to do is build a stack exchange kind of form for the podcast so that we have a place where people can discuss the podcast talk about their projects talk about our projects and it's also a place where like the history doesn't just vaporize in three months like it does in our slack channel and and it's searchable by google so that if someone wants to search for something um let's say because actually like the problem now is people will ask a question about macrofab in our slack channel and we'll answer it but then in three months that answer goes away or like someone just googles that question and it doesn't pop up so um with the slack channel is not going to go away uh but i'm going to start building this stack exchange form kind of thing um and we're going to try it out um i already have the 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 website it's a mfer.io um that's gonna be our test bed for it it doesn't go anywhere steven so don't even try it just goes nowhere right now yeah (laughs) but um i'm going to build that up and then when that's built the first project that i'm going to put on it is the power distribution module and then what we're also going to do is do our first contest in forever so it's been a while yeah so we're going to bring the contest back i was talking with our marketing team and they want to do a contest a quarter, which sounds like a lot, um, but we're going to try it. So um, everyone out there in in uh, podcast land that's listening, let us know if you have any ideas for like contests that you want to see. Um, like the last one we ran, unfortunately, I think like Steve and I peaked at our idea, which was like the most useless thing yeah that was fun it was such a great <laughs> was project to- like <laughs> such a great topic for a contest um so if anyone else out there has ideas steve and i will brainstorm some ideas too 
Um, we're not out of ideas yet. That's impossible. <laughs> yeah, 372. We're still going. Yep. So, uh, yeah. Um, that was the MacroFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steve and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at macfab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at macfab.com slash Slack.